Well, we're in the home stretch of the book of James. How many people have found uh, this study of James to be refreshing and wonderful and great? Yeah, yeah, I think um, we were just talking as a staff not too long ago. It's been great for us, and we've loved it. It's been, um, it's been a wonderful transition out of Nehemiah this summer um, to come in and, and actually really get into some really practical stuff of how do we actually live out our faith, how, do, how are we doers of the word. So we've been encouraged by it. We're in the home stretch. We have today, and then we have one more talk next week, which Russ will give, um, kind of finishing off the book. And then the 21st, we're going to have a, um, a kind of a community response to the book of James Sunday. So we're going to create some space for some maybe longer sharing um, and have some people just be able to share with the community how has the book impacted you? What have you learned? How have you grown? Um, so come prepared. If, if you have been moved by this, if you've been challenged, if uh, the book of James has gotten in your face a little bit and you want to share that with us, we'd love to hear it. And that will be happening on November 21st, so two Sundays from now. So um, come prepared with that. Well, uh, if you have your Bible, you can open to the fifth chapter. So in the first, uh, let me give you just a, a real quick overview here. In the first six verses, James gives a pretty strong warning to the rich the wealthy landovers, uh, landowners of this time. So he spends the first six verses doing that. Then he transitions and he actually begins to address the poor, the brethren, as he calls them. And that's the next five verses in the book, talking about patience, talking about enduring suffering, very similar to how he starts the book of James in chapter 1. And then verse 12 he uses to kind of summarize these two juxtaposing um, comments, uh, exhortations, admonishments, whatever you want to call them, to these two groups of people. Some commentators say maybe chapter 12 begins a whole new thought. Some commentators say it kind of finalizes or brings conclusion to the first 11 verses. Um, I, that's kind of where I tend to be, so that's how we're going to study it this morning. So verse 1 says this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Russ mentioned last week that one of the dirty words that we don't really talk about in church is money. We actually don't talk about money all that well, and when we do, it's often in conjunction with the upcoming building campaign, which we've all probably been a part of a church that's done that before. Sometimes it's just a part of, you know, yearly there's this pastoral drive of, wow, we look at our books and we may need to talk about money again at this point. So it could maybe be just in conjunction with that. So budgetary need, you, you kind of respond to the needs within the congregation and say, it's time to pull out the money passage and, and let's encourage our people to begin to give again more regularly. Sometimes it's even in just in conjunction with um, a missionary or a, a, just a present need within the family, within the congregation there you say, well let's actually talk about money because there's a specific need where we can kind of rally our people and we can begin to address this. But outside of that, honestly, we don't talk about money all that much. It's kind of one of those things, you know, I, I was kind of raised in an environment where the two things you didn't really talk about uh, was money and then politics. Everything else was kind of fair game, but those two things were just a little too intimate, a little too off the table to talk about. And, and I think sometimes, unfortunately, the church has approached it that way as well. But today we're going to talk about it because James talks about it and we can't get around it. And James gives this incredibly strong warning in the first six verses. I think when we, when we begin to look at this idea of money, we have one of two reactions. The first is the flat-out reaction that, well, money is just evil. And we kind of just close ourselves off at that point. We say, money is evil. 
I don't even want to talk about it. We all have instances where we've seen it hurt somebody, where money has hurt us at some level. We've seen it where it's corrupted a good friend who was in this job but then got this, this radical new job that was giving him way more money, and, and then you see how slowly over time money can begin to corrupt people. And so we just say, well, money just is evil. That's the bottom line. We even quote that First Timothy passage, and we say, well, the love of money is the root of all evil. But when we quote that, we know that we're not even quoting it correctly. Because First Timothy says this, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. It's not the root of all evil. It's the root of all sorts of evil. You wouldn't believe the amount of conversations I've had with people that have just said, I wish I could live in a place where money just wasn't even a thing where money didn't matter, where I didn't have to have a job. Now, oftentimes these people are college students, <laughs> so they don't have money anyways. So it's really easy to say that at that point. But there's that sense of, oh man, wouldn't it be great if we just didn't even have money, if that didn't have to be a thing that we needed to worry about. But the reality is, is money isn't evil. Money isn't bad. Money is just a thing. Money is not inherently evil by itself. It's just a thing. It's a reality. And I think what is evil is how we tend to deal with it. That's where it becomes evil. That's where it can, can corrupt people. That's where it can become something that's bad. We've had those friends who have been poisoned by money. I had great friends, really, really close, great friends, who are in a business partnership together, and money corrupted that relationship. They're no longer speaking to one another. The business was doing great. And there was some choices, decisions that were made that were, um, that were less than ethical. And that whole relationship, that two families that loved one another is fractured. And so I've seen the pain of money in our world. But money is not evil. Money is just a thing. We make it evil. The way that we respond, the way that we deal with it, the way that we steward it is when it becomes bad, when it becomes evil. I think the second reaction that we have is this one. Well, it's not my problem doesn't pertain to me. I'm not rich, so I don't have to worry about these admonishments in the scripture that speak specifically to the wealthy landowners, that speak specifically to the rich people. For most of us, unfortunately, I think we've let our kind of middle classness, which I would say the majority of us fit in, lull us to sleep. We feel like, well, I'm middle class, so I'm not really rich, and so this doesn't really pertain to me. And when you stand up next to the Bill Gates of the world, when you stand up next to the Paul Allens of the world, we're not rich. I mean, honestly, there's not many of us in this room. I would be surprised if there were any of us in this room that would consider ourselves rich when you put yourself next to those people. But I think we've maybe kind of used that as a free out for us. We've kind of said, well, because I'm not those guys, then maybe, maybe the scriptures about the wealthy people, the scriptures about being rich don't really pertain to me because I don't fit in that category, and I think we've either missed it or we've just flat out neglected our role in being rich. James talks a little bit about this this morning. We all know and we've all heard that globally we're rich. How many people have heard all the different stats about how wealthy Americans are if you have just one dollar in your pocket, right? Yeah, I, frankly I'm a little tired of them. I mean we've heard them all. So I didn't put together all these stats that we could look at up here because I think inherently we know this. I think intellectually we know this. I think we can see pictures of Tijan and say, oh my gosh, we are so wealthy. We don't even know. But it's that, that weird thing where we know it up here, but it hasn't hit here yet. 
it hasn't sunken in. We haven't actually dealt with the reality of, wow, globally we are rich. Even nationally, most of us are in the upper wealthy category. So James, in this section, gives what some people call the New Testament's strongest warning against what Timothy calls all sorts of evils. The strongest warning against the wealthy landowners. The strongest warning against rich people. And he talks about three things in particular. He talks about hoarding, oppression, and self-indulgence. Verse 2, he says this, verse 2 and 3, Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you, and, you will cons- and it will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. How many people have seen that hoarding or hoarders TV show on TV? It's, it's one of those TV shows that just sucks you in. Like, you don't even want to watch it, and then three and a half hours later, you've watched like six back-to-back episodes. <laughs> Not that I've ever done that, but we, so my wife and I have recently moved, um, and so as you move, you, I think you, you kind of begin to realize how much of a hoarder you are. At just at the very heart of you, and so, um, and we're nowhere near where these the, the, the individuals are on this TV show. But it, but it is funny as my wife and I have been unpacking to kind of give each other a hard time about the things that we end up keeping. Like I have every dance photo that's ever been taken of me with my dance dates throughout all of you know middle school and high school. I actually wanted to just put them like post them all up on the the wall of fame or something like that. Grace was not as into that. Grace has all these like little memorabilia boxes of old jewelry that she's been given, or you know her uh, what was it? Um, her what, what do you get before your license? What's that called? Your permit. Yeah, thank you. She has like her old permit in there. You know, it's 15 years old. At some point, you got to get rid of your permit. Like it's, it's just not. It's no longer cool to keep that. And so. It has been funny to kind of process through some of this stuff and, and kind of at the very heart of us be like, wow, we, we have some weird tendencies to keep this stuff. James isn't speaking about that type of hoarding, obviously. Hoarding is the storing up of exorbitant wealth without regard to the needs around you. See, James is referring to the rich landowners. They have all this land. They have beautiful garments. They have gold and silver. These three things being kind of the primary indicators of great wealth in this context. And James is saying, all these things are temporal. These things will fade. The natural processes of the world are going to take these things. The moths are going to eat your garments. Your gold and your silver, silver, silver will soon have rust on them. They're temporal. Don't store up these things when there are great needs around you. I think hoarding wealth comes from either being insecure or being fearful. In insecurity, you begin to ask the question, where is my identity? I'm insecure in who I am, so where do I find my identity? And hoarding is one of those places where we can begin to point to where our identity is. Well, I have this much gold, I have this much silver, these are the beautiful clothes I have, I have all this land, and we begin to try to, in our own insecurity, hoard our wealth to say, this is who I am, this is my identity. We begin to find our value, our identity in the temporal things of life. Or maybe it comes from fear. The fear of the unknown. The fear of what's going to happen to me. I need to have enough wealth to make sure that I can last if something happens. 
But in that, do we really trust? If we let that be the motivator of how much wealth we have, are we really trusting in the Lord's great provision? Do we really trust that the Lord clothed the lilies of the valley, as Jesus talks about? I had a really interesting conversation with my dad a couple of weeks ago. Every you know, quarter, half a year, I invite my dad kind of into the finances of my wife and I. My dad is a, a wonderful man. I respect him very deeply in how he's lived his life, how he's stewarded the money that's been given to him. And so I kind of invite him into our process and say, Dad, here's where we're at. Here's what we got in you know, savings, and this is where our money's going. This is kind of our budget. You know, how would you advise me? If you were my financial advisor, what would you say? And so we begin to talk about all the different types of insurances that you can have. And you can have health insurance, you can have life insurance, you can have whole versus term insurance, you can have gap insurances, you can have disability insurances. And, and he begins to talk about all these things and my head just began to spin. And, and the thought came, kind of bubbled up in me of when is enough enough? At what point am I insuring too much? At what point is that fear driving me to make these choices? And when do I begin to trust in the midst of this. It's like those commercials, I think they're ING commercials that have the, the big numbers follow people around and the question is, what's your number? You know, what is the number that you need in order to retire at the same level of life that you want to live now? Or what is that number where you want to retire at a better level than what you live right now? How much is insecurity, how much is fear driving that number? And I think that's maybe what James is getting at. There are needs around us. So are we letting these, in, these insecurities, these fears, drive the wealth that we amass? Now, I'm not saying don't have a retirement plan. I'm not saying don't have health insurance. I'm just saying wrestle with this stuff. I think we need to honestly wrestle with that idea. What is that number? How are we hoarding our wealth? James moves on in verse 4 by saying, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. So what is oppression? How can it be defined? Oppression is the exercise of authority or power in a burdensome, cruel, or unjust manner. So what does this have to do with us? Many of you are probably saying, well, Slavery was abolished centuries ago. You're probably thinking, I don't have an indentured servant back home. Maybe you're thinking, I actually actively work towards justice issues. I've oriented my whole life around speaking out for those who are oppressed. And there are many people in this room that live their lives that way. But I think because we're not actively oppressing somebody just right here, it's not out in the open like it was in the context of James, maybe we begin to misunderstand or misuse our position as wealthy Americans. Maybe we need to have a bigger view of oppression, not just the oppression that's right here in your face, but how as wealthy Americans could we actually be partaking in a system that's oppressive? And is there a way where we can begin to back out of that slowly? You see, we live in an increasingly shrinking world and the choices that we make here don't only affect us and our neighbors, they actually affect the globe. I read this um, incredibly fascinating book a little while ago. It's called Doing Christian Ethics from the Margins. And this guy speaks about 
our need to understand ethics, not from a place of power or authority, but from a place um, of poverty, a place of people that are being oppressed. And he writes um, kind of throughout this whole thing, he gives these little stories about situations that are currently happening or, or happened and then asks some reflection questions. And I thought it would be maybe interesting to read one of these. So this is um, a story in the chapter about global relationships. And he says this, Lisa Rahman is a 19-year-old who used to work at a garment factory in Dhaka, Bangladesh, assembling Winnie the Pooh shirts. She was paid the equivalent of five cents to assemble Pooh shirts at the Walt Disney, at the Walt, or that the Walt Disney Company retails for $17.99. In 2002, when workers united to publicly complain of poor working conditions, Disney canceled all future work orders, leaving workers like Lisa Rama without few options. Meanwhile, most stockholders of Disney did not take responsibility for the behavior of the corporation in which they invested. Now, if you know my wife, you know that I'm treading on thin ice here because she loves Disneyland. But I think this is an incredibly interesting little story. This is oppression right here. And so that question of, as stockholders, as people that buy the Winnie the Pooh shirts, as people that go to Disneyland, are we supporting an oppressive system? I think it's kind of hard to argue that we're not. And I know it's out there, and I know you may need to do some mental gymnastics to actually get your head wrapped around that, but at some point, you gotta just acknowledge, man, am I feeding into this oppressive system? Yes, I don't have an indentured servant. Yes, I don't believe in slavery, but Am I feeding into a system that inherently is oppressing others? And do we need to wrestle with that? Do we need to come to terms with that? Do we need, maybe need to make some different decisions, some different choices in the way that we spend money so that we're not giving in to a system that oppresses? It's not just Disney. It's, all, it's Walmart, it's BP, it's ConAgra, it's whoever. I mean, it's all these multinational corporations. And I don't want this to be some, you know, go against the man type talk, but I think it is, it's, it's an interesting thing to wrestle with, nonetheless. So the ways in which we spend money affect the global community. I don't think we have to be overtly oppressing someone to be a part of an oppressive system. And I don't think we can be unaware of that. I don't think we can just bury our heads in the sand about that. He then goes into verse five and he says this, you have lived luxuriously on the earth and have led a life of wanton pleasure you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. The rich landowners were clearly incredibly self-indulgent in a time when the poor were suffering greatly. Self-indulgence is one of those funny things where it's always easy to point out self-indulgence in somebody else. You walk around and you, and you, can, you can see it in everybody else, but it's really hard to see it in your own life. It's really hard to take that step back and say, man, am I, am I being self-indulgent right now? Am I living a luxurious life in a time where the poor are suffering greatly? And so self-indulgence is a little bit hard to define. We know it when we see it, but we often don't wrestle with it within our own lives. Maybe it's easiest to see in just the way that we waste stuff or the way that we just disregard the stuff we already have. How many people have opened the fridge before or opened the cupboard? Tons of food in there and you open it and you're like, oh, there's nothing to eat in here. 
Has anybody, please don't leave me up here alone. So yeah, okay, people have done that. That's a common term around our house. I do that all the time. You're just, you open it and there's, I mean, there's like $300 worth of food in your home and you're just like, oh, there's just literally nothing to eat right here, right now. I'm gonna go and buy a hamburger or something. Maybe food's not your issue, maybe it's your closet. You open your closet and everything's hung neatly in a row and you have your sock drawer and your underwear drawer and your jeans are folded and pressed and you open it up before you go to work and you're like, I have nothing to wear today. Just nothing to wear. I wonder where that comes from. Or even in terms that we use, when we are hungry and we say, man, I'm starving right now. I mean, when you say that around somebody like Tijan, when you say that around somebody in South America that actually is starving, and they hear one of us say, oh, I haven't eaten since breakfast, I am That's, that kind of gives you a gut check a little bit. So maybe self-indulgence is hard to see in our own lives, easy to point out in other people's lives, but, but as we begin to process, as we begin to see the way in which we waste food, the way that we use clean drinking water to wash our SUVs, the way that we have nothing in our house to eat, it kind of begins to tear away some of that. You begin to come to terms with, wow, maybe I do live with a lot of self-indulgence. We've become incredibly accustomed to getting what we want, when we want, and I don't think we truly understand how self-indulgent we are. Verse 6, James moves on and he says, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. This is an incredibly serious issue. James gives this strong admonishment to the rich. And he says, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man, so much so that the hoarding nature, the oppressive power, the self-indulgent lifestyle that these rich landowners were living was putting to death the righteous man, the poor man. So what does this mean for us? I think it means that maybe we need to live a life of a little more conscientiousness. Maybe we need to just think a little bit more before we buy stuff. Think a little bit more before we use words like starving. Now, I know you're going to say, well, their world was way different than our world. He was writing in a, in a localized culture where oppression was out there. There's enormous gap between rich and poor. Great disparity. The affluence, the poverty was in your face. And we live in a system that's super complex. It's hard for me to make these jumps of how could I not support Disney because my kids love the Disney princesses or my kids love the Disney TV shows, whatever that is. But do we really want that to be our argument? I mean, when we're standing on Judgment Day, is that the argument that we want? It was just too complex for me to get my head wrapped around it. I don't know. I don't know if we want that to be our argument. I don't want to be insulated from these issues. I want to be challenged and pushed. I don't want to just fall asleep in my middle-class suburbia lifestyle. I want to be, I want James to get in my face a little bit. I spoke at a youth camp um, last week and I have a good friend who works at First Press and uh, kind of oversees their high school ministry there and so he invited me to come and, and 
they were doing a fall camp, so I spoke a little bit. And one of the things I talked about with these high school students was um, this idea of layered living. There's a, a gentleman by the name of Chap Clark who works down at Fuller Theological Seminary, and he um, spends a lot of his world just hanging out with high school kids and doing, um, kind of coming at it from a, a psychological viewpoint. He talks about this idea of layered living, that high school kids live in layers. And as adults, we've abandoned them, and they have no longer the ability to assimilate into adulthood because of adults have abandoned him. I'm, this is a real short overview. But these layered, uh, these layered lives that they live is, and, and we've probably all seen this, probably all lived it, is the high school kid's one way at youth group, but then is actually a completely different person at home, but then is a completely different person at school, and is actually very different with this group of friends than this different group of friends, and, and you begin to see all these layers kind of amassing in these high school students. And, and I, I'm sure we've all seen this. If you have high school students, you've probably seen this at some level. I know that I lived this life as a high school student. I was one way at school and one way kind of in my party scene world, but then my parents had no idea what was going on because I was able to live in those layers. And Chap talks about this as being kind of an issue for high school students, but I wonder if this isn't an issue for adults as well. Maybe we're just a little bit better at masking it. Maybe we're just a little bit better at kind of keeping it under wraps. I mean, maybe the things, your family life, your church life, your job life, maybe those layers are all kind of on the same plane and, and people don't see a difference between those things. But what about the deeper layers, the deeper layers of security? when it comes to wealth, that security layer of, man, I, I trust in the Lord, but I need to make my number bigger because I don't know if I trust all that much. I don't know if I trust that he really can provide for me in the way that I feel like I need to be provided for. Or the justification layer where you say, well, I, I give a ton of money. I, I can buy that. You know, I need one of those things. Or even the entitlement layer. I work incredibly hard. I think I deserve this at this point in my life. I deserve whatever that thing is. What if true discipleship was actually when those layers begin to all level out and there is no difference? You get rid of the layers that are unhealthy, that are not gospel-centered, you begin to live as one person that actually be, that kind of approaches these oppression issues, these hoarding issues, that thinks theologically through the things that we buy, the things that we do, the things that we say. James transitions in verse 7 through 11, and he says this, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. The Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. James again transitions. Now he's talking to the poor in this section. And his exhortation is this, be patient. Those who do not have to the poor, be patient. Don't see the rich and wish to be the rich. Don't wish to have what they have. Don't wish to live the life that they live. Be patient. Trust. The Lord is coming. 
endure the hardship, endure the suffering, be patient, trust, know that the Lord is coming. I have a friend named Sean Cunningham, who was a, a great friend of mine when I lived in, uh, in Bellingham, was a part of college, or was going to college there. He always had this kind of phrase that he liked to pull out every now and again, and he would say, if I knew Jesus was coming back in six weeks, how would I live my life differently? And then he would always follow that up with, would I really change light bulbs in my house? I think he used that to get out of doing some, some chores around the house. But again, it, it's one of those statements that if you pause and let it sink in a little bit, it, it kind of shifts things. I mean, if we were really believed that the Lord was coming, was right at the door, how would we live differently? How would we spend our money differently? Would we live with a different type of urgency? James highlights the prophets. He talks about Job. We all know the story of Job, and he says, be patient like Job was patient, enduring hardship and suffering and trial. Be patient. Wait for the Lord. He also talks about the farmer, which is interesting because he talks about a farmer, uh, or he's speaking to the farmers, the rich landowners, in the first six verses. So he kind of comes back to this idea. And in his rebuke to the rich, he uses the example of these rich landowners. But now, talking to the people that were poor, he says, wait for the rains. Wait as the farmer waits for the rains. Here he invites us to wait on the Lord as the farmer waits for the rains. The farmer is completely dependent upon that. His livelihood is tied to the rains that the Lord sends. The Lord sends. And James is saying, wait like the farmer waits. De be dependent upon the Lord. Wait for the coming of the Lord. It's almost as if he's asking, what kind of farmer do we want to be? Do you want to be the type of farmer that out of fear and insecurity hoards your wealth? Do you want to be the kind of farmer that out of greed and power oppresses others? Do you want to be the kind of farmer that lives a life of unbelievable self-indulgence when there are needs present around you? Or do you want to be a farmer that waits for the Lord's deliverance? farmer that's completely dependent upon God's perfect timing, completely dependent upon God showing up. So what kind of farmer do you want to be is the question. The first farmer has a tight grip on his wealth. And he's let cultural influence sway how he spends his money, how he uses his money, how he hoards his money. And honestly, I'm not all that convinced that we're not like that. I'm not all that convinced that we don't live in that world most of the time. And let me be real honest and repent, because I live in that world. And here I am, one of a couple different people trying to lead this church, and yet I struggle with this stuff. And so I repent, and I say, I, I battle this. I live luxuriously often. I often don't care about how companies do dealings in the third world because it's cheaper for me to buy it. 
here. I get worried about my, my security in the future. And so I want to save up a bunch of money because I don't want my lifestyle to look differently. And so I repent. And maybe this morning it needs to be about repentance for you. James ends in verse 12 by saying this, But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. This is an echoing of one of Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, and I think it's a call to let our character speak. I think it's less about actual oaths and more about James saying, let your character speak. Don't swear by heaven, but may your character be so rock solid that you can just say yes, that you can just say no, and that's enough. Let your character carry the weight. I think he's getting at this idea of our character is what's going to be judged. What's at the heart of us is going to be judged. So what is your character? When we talk about wealth, where, where would you put that? How do you think you're living that out? How do you think you're being a steward of the money that God has given you? I want to read this quote. It's by a guy named uh, Ronald Sider, and he says this, I am convinced that at the heart of the problem is a one-sided reductionist understanding of the gospel of salvation. Too many evangelicals in too many ways give the impression that the really important part of the gospel is forgiveness of sins. If we just repeat the formula and say we want Jesus to forgive our sins, we are Christian. Notice, however, how this can be so easily led to cheap grace. If all there is in, is in accepting that the gospel is receiving the forgiveness of sins, one can accept the gospel, become a Christian, and then go on living the same adulterous, materialistic, racist life that one lived before. Salvation becomes not a life-transforming experience that reorients every corner of life, but a one-way ticket to heaven, and one can live like hell until he gets there. Now, that's a pretty strong statement. Jesus said it this way, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. You see, this isn't about getting everybody to that magic number of 10%. And I hope you see that. That's not what this is about. This isn't a church, let's rally around, we need everybody to start giving more here. Because honestly, you can give 10% and still be a hoarder. You can give 10% and still be oppressive in the way that you spend your money. You can give 10% and still live a life of self-indulgence. This is about shifting our entire view of money. It's about allowing the gospel to dictate how we spend, how we use, how we steward the money we've been given. Because isn't it what we want? Don't we want salvation to radically reorient every corner of our life? Doesn't that sound beautiful? That's why I love that quote, because I think he gets at it. I want that. So maybe it's just about loosening our grip a little bit more on the money that we do have. I'm not asking for wholesale change this morning. I don't think it's wise for all of us just to go and sell all of our possessions. 
cash out our retirement plans, no longer have health insurance. That's not what this is about. And I hope, again, that you see that. I think what this is about is just a shift in views. How can I do things a little bit differently? I think I'm just urging for awareness. I think I want the gospel to dictate how we spend money. I think we need to be willing to question the things that we buy, the way that that impacts the world. So here's what usually happens at this point. Usually we pray, and I invite up the worship band, and we sing, and we pass around the buckets, and oftentimes we hang around after the service, and then we go back home, and we kind of slowly forget what was communicated. We watch football, we do whatever we do, we spend a great day with our family, and soon enough, in a couple of days, we remember that service was great, we remember that something was said, we remember that we worshiped, but we can't quite remember what it was. I had a guy come up to me three weeks ago, and he said, hey, I came, the first time I came was the time you spoke. And I said, oh, that's great. We're really glad you came back. And he's like, I, I remember it being great, but I have no idea what you said. <laughs> Probably reflects more on me than him. But I think we often live that way. I think we often say, we show up, we get this emotional high, and then we go home, and everything just kind of, we get back into our own ways. So we're going to change that up this morning. We're actually not going to worship through song. We're going to worship through action this morning. So we're going to try to get out of here a little bit earlier than what we normally do. And I'm actually going to ask you guys to go and spend money this morning. What if we all left here and we spent money in a different way? We went and blessed somebody right now this morning with the money that we have in our pocket. What if we begin to view money differently just by taking some steps of action, not intellectually doing it, not theologically starting to view money differently, but actually acting in a way that we spend our money differently. We have some ideas up here on the screens of maybe some things that we could do. So what if you went out right now and you actually bought a stranger a meal, or you just went to a restaurant with your family and you've picked out another couple sitting at a table and you said, hey, waitress, I want you to bring their bill to me because my family is going to pay for their meal this morning. What if you went to a different church and gave your tithe this morning? We're okay with that. We want you to do that. What if you went up to Emmaus right now and dropped your tithe in the bucket at Emmaus? Or you went to Fourth Memorial? Or you went right next door to our church neighbors here, City Life, and you said, I want to give my money to you this morning. If we really believe in the church global, then that shouldn't matter to us. That's a big step of faith, and we want to take it. We want you to help us take that step. What if you met a need of someone else? What if you gave your money to the Benevolence Fund at church here? There are several different needs, pressing needs that we know of right now, that people need money to get through a hard time. What if you don't have money, and you're saying, Kevin, I literally have no money to give right now then go and pick up garbage in a park. Give your time. Do something this morning. Give to a missionary. Go give to one of our missional partners. Tom's standing right there. People from Christ Kitchen are here. There's people from Global Neighborhood. Write a check to them right now. What if you, that family, that person that you met in our greeting time, what if you said, hey, I want to take you out for breakfast? I want to bless you. 
find that person and go and invite them out. Take them to Hallett's, buy them a cup of coffee. What if you went to Starbucks and paid for the person's coffee behind you? I mean, really, what, what would happen? What if we all begin to view money differently and begin to bless people in unique and creative ways that way? I promise you, you would start to slowly loosen the grips on the things that you have. Now, some of you may be saying, this is a huge stretch for me, Kevin. I just want to give to the church like I normally do. That's fine. Great. Buckets are in the back. We don't want to pass them around because, honestly, we want to have that not be a temptation. We don't want people to try to get the get-out-of-jail-free card and throw their money in and just say, well, I did it, Whew. and then leave. So I'm actually saying it's okay to go and give your tithe money away this morning. But I would challenge you to give above and beyond your tithe because it's not about the 10%. So maybe you drop your tithe in the bucket this morning, but then you go out and you give to another church or you buy somebody else a meal. So that's the plan for the morning. We're out of here 15, 20 minutes early, if not as early as we wanted to be. But I think it's critically important that we don't look for the excuses right now. We don't think, oh, well, I got kids, and then I got to get to this thing, or, well, I can't do this because I have this. No, go and do. Take an action step right now.